0: The following CME activity features content presented by leading experts. These excerpts are part of a certified educational activity titled Maximizing Overall Survival in Metastatic Castration-Resistant Prostate Cancer, an aggressive strategy to optimizing treatment sequencing. To access the entire activity and complete the post-test, please go online to www.peercme.com forward ZPC. A printable transcript, slides, and other features are also available. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals.
1: Hello, this is Joe O'Sullivan from Queen's University, Belfast in the UK. Welcome to this educational activity reviewing how we optimize multidisciplinary treatment of patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Joining me in this discussion is Val Lewington from King's College London in the United Kingdom and Neil Shore from Carolina Urologic Research Centre in the United States. Given the most recent data supporting earlier use of androgen receptor inhibitors for patients with non-metastatic CRPC, we want to explore the evolving role of different treatments in the progression of prostate cancer. So. Let's talk about our case, which is a patient with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer who got a good response to ADT. He progressed in the bone and was commenced on apiraterone and Nesumab and continued to have a good response for about two years. His PSA is starting to rise again. His restaging scan have demonstrated advancing bone metastases. Thankfully, no evidence of soft tissue disease. Dr. Lewington, would this be a patient you would encounter?
0: Increasingly, yes we're seeing men who've progressed beyond the novel hormone treatments who then come back to our MDT for further discussion. And if we get the timing of that right, then we should be able to find men who have bone-only disease in the absence of any significant nodal or visceral disease.
1: In my own clinic, a patient like this who's progressing on abiraterone, the licensed drugs available are radium-223, enzalutamide, and docetaxel. But I think we're all well aware of the data looking at the idea of cross-resistance. It's very difficult to incorporate both ABI and ENSA effectively into a treatment schedule. Neil, what are the treatment options you consider at present?
2: In the United States, this patient could also receive sipuleucel-T. I I would step-by-step step explain the advantages and disadvantages of each therapy. For this particular patient, assuming a relatively active lifestyle, and continued lack of visceral metastases, I would prefer the course of radium-223, which A, is generally much better tolerated than taxane-based therapy, B, does not preclude the use of taxane-based therapy, and C, has a completely different mechanism of action in terms of stabilizing or causing some level, hopefully, of prostate cancer cell regression. Personally, I think a patient like this is well suited for radium-223, but in Europe, if the patient was fit or suitable for
1: chemotherapy, they would need to be offered that before proceeding with radium-223. This is a fairly recent change within the European market.
0: Some of my oncology colleagues might recommend a trial of low-dose dexamethasone as an alternative systemic treatment option, particularly if the patient isn't particularly keen on chemotherapy. Depending on the patient's response to that, he would then still be suitable for Radium-223 within the framework of the new European guidance.
2: Joe, what factors do you consider when selecting a second-line treatment option?
1: The factors that I think about when transitioning from one therapy to another are, first of all, what the patient wants from the therapy, so how aggressively they want to be treated. Then to look at the extent of disease, then very importantly, their cancer itself. For example, a rapid PSA doubling time or a rapidly increasing alkaline phosphatase level. If a patient is potentially suitable for all therapies, I will discuss with them the logistics of the therapies, the potential complications and also what we might likely achieve.
0: And we absolutely need to be sure to avoid any cross-resistance with the androgen receptor antagonists.
1: Neil, in a patient like this who is progressing on abiraterone, something that has been previously proposed was the idea of layering, whereby radium-223 would be added to the abiraterone.
2: Recently, the phase 3 trial, the ERA-223, where the abiraterone and radium were combined simultaneously, demonstrated some challenges with fractures and possibly deaths in the interim analysis. Val, have you any views on this data?
0: The data were really very unexpected, but there are some important differences between the ERA223 and the al trials. In the Al-Simca trial, clinically significant skeletal-related events were recorded, such as those that would be expected to have an adverse impact upon the patient's condition. But in the ERA study, skeletal events were recorded as radiological changes. And I'm conscious that many of us feel that some of those radiological changes might never have resulted in a clinically significant adverse event for the patient. The other factor is that these were very different patient populations. Patients in the Alcimpeca study by and large had a much higher volume of skeletal metastases than those recruited to era 223.
1: I think they are very good observations. Do you think there will be a reduction in the use of radium 223 as a result of these recommendations?
0: It hasn't been my experience so far, no. I think it's a question of weighing up the relative tolerability and the feasibility of treatment in this patient population. Referral patterns really haven't changed significantly so far.
2: It's perfectly reasonable for now in my clinic for patients to first receive abiraterone acetate with prednisone and if they are progressing, I would stop the drug and if they were appropriate for radium-223, then I would sequence them with radium-223 for M1-CRPC bone-predominant disease. I feel differently regarding enzalutamide in terms of the combination based upon my successful results in a phase 2 open-label study. But that said, I do think additional trials are going to be very important as we better understand the impact on the bone compartment. So, Neil,
1: You'll be aware of the recent restrictions imposed on radium-223 by the EMA, which really mandates two lines of therapy for castration-resistant prostate cancer before considering radium-223. Do you think we have a danger of losing the window of opportunity? And how do you think we should approach this problem?
2: I think relegating radium-223 to utilization only as third line in MCRPC patients is a terrible mistake. The Alstimka trial clearly demonstrates M1 CRPC patients who benefited dramatically from a survival standpoint prior to chemotherapy and after chemotherapy who had not received by and large any significant utilizations of abiraterone or enzalutamide. I think it's important for both patients and physicians to have flexibility and to really espouse the notion of patient-physician shared decision-making.
1: Personally, in my clinic when using radium two two three, we've always used as in combination with bone strengthening agents, most likely solidronic acid. So Val, has there been a change in the way radium is used in your practice?
0: There has been a change of emphasis with perhaps higher regard being given to the whole concept of bone health in men who have been on long term antigen deprivation treatment. So whereas we would not Usually, previously, have considered bone protecting treatments with radium 223. I think that many centres would recommend that on a routine basis now.
1: So, our second case today is a patient on apalutamide as part of a clinical trial for non metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer who has developed radiographic progression and also a biochemical progression. If we think about a standard definition of M0 CRPC that's based on the prostate cancer working group definitions, and that By CT and bone scan, we have no radiological evidence of metastatic disease.
2: So this is an area of active research. We know invariably that these patients will progress more often than not with bone metastatic disease. But we really don't know what to expect in terms of resistance patterns. For this patient, I think this is someone much like in case one, who would potentially significantly benefit by having a unique mechanism of action. So assuming the patient did not have visceral metastases, the patient would certainly be a candidate for radium-223. And yes, the patient in the United States would be a candidate for sipuleucel t as well as for a taxane-based therapy, specifically docetaxel. In my experience and after having a very careful discussion of all the approved therapies and when I explain to them the advantages and disadvantages of the therapies the patients invariably will choose a better tolerated therapy and a therapy that doesn't require dramatic burden on their lifestyle to obtain and again does not preclude the use of other therapies. And so for all those reasons I'm very positive regarding my recommendation for radium 223.
1: Consideration should be given to obviously clinical trials as well.
0: Yes, I'd agree with that.
1: But we're pretty sure that a significant proportion of patients considered M0 on conventional imaging actually do have small areas of oligometastatic disease and there is a very strong temptation to treat with either radiation or surgery. Most commonly stereotactic radiation therapy There are a number of clinical trials currently recruiting, which hopefully will answer this question. Val, can I ask you, with conventional imaging, are we missing metastases in these patients, do you think?
0: I think the advent of the new imaging techniques is going to transform our understanding of what is truly a non-metastatic CRPC patient, if in fact they exist at all. I think it's not just a question of the superior resolution of the technology, it's also the new tracers such as radiolabeled choline or PSMA. And in combination, this is adding to the sensitivity, the specificity, and the reliability of the techniques. The limitation is availability and access. That's very variable. And frankly, in some centers, the standard will have to remain CT and a conventional bone scan for some time to come.
1: To summarise We want to make sure that patients have the best survival and the best quality of life. And so the timing and sequencing of the various agents used is very important. We want our patients to have access to all the agents possible, but we also want to minimize toxicity and we need to make sure we make individual patient decisions based on multidisciplinary team input. Clinical assessment, imaging, and knowledge of the agents is so very important in making the right decisions for these patients. Hello, this is Joe O'Sullivan from Queen's University of Belfast in the United Kingdom. In this presentation, we're going to look at the importance of the multidisciplinary team in making management decisions for patients with metastatic prostate cancer and how, in practice, this works within our own centres. So let's talk about our roles in managing a patient with metastatic CRPC as part of a multidisciplinary team. In case one, we have a patient here with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer He was well, but had controlled hypertension and some lipid dysfunction, as well as a past history of a TIA. He had abiraterone along with prednisolone and demonstrated a complete response with disappearance of lesions. By September 2017, however, patient now returns with increasing PSA, increasing bone pain, showing radiographic progression with four target lesions. In our own MDT here in Belfast, a patient like this will likely be presented by one of the oncologists, but the discussions will be very much with radiology and new medicine to talk about the stage of the disease, the current radiological situation. In our situation, usually it's between oncology and radiology making decisions like this. Val, how would you handle a case like that in your MDT?
0: So in my own MDT, I would be discussing all of the available imaging, recommending any further investigations that might help to inform the decision. And then, together with the team, we would be piecing together all the evidence to look at treatment options, whether that would be chemotherapy or, indeed, if a patient was eligible, bone-targeted therapy using a radioisotope.
1: Thank you, Val. And Neil, how would a discussion in your MDT go with a patient like this?
2: there's been a rather remarkable evolution for me as a urologist. We know there's a tremendous amount of heterogeneity in prostate cancer and how we approach the diagnosis, management, and therapeutic decision-making for these patients. So in my experience, I have a very regular, ongoing discussion with my radiation oncologists, my radiologists, my primary care physicians, oftentimes my cardiologists and sometimes my neurologists to best understand how I can optimally manage the patient. For me personally, I have embraced virtually all of the systemic therapies and I really believe that the true north for all clinicians everywhere in the world is to optimize therapies and diagnostics that they have access to in such a way to benefit their patient.
1: I think this pattern of care is very different right throughout the world and in some centres urologists really take the lead role in making decisions. In other countries like in the UK in particular really oncologists would be the key decision maker in collaboration with the rest of the MDT.
2: There is no universal model. There has to be flexibility and adaptability because of the heterogeneity of the way healthcare is practiced.
1: It's also very important to think about the other members of support staff within the MDT, for example, nurse specialists, chemotherapy nurses, etc.
0: The group that I would really commend are the nurse specialists who act as the go-between, interacting between the clinical team and the patient. The nurse specialist is a very well-informed individual as she knows about the management of prostate cancer but also knows the patient well enough to be able to discuss treatment options on a one-to-one, face-to-face basis and I think that's absolutely invaluable.
1: Neil, would a patient like this be considered for radium-223 and why?
0: Yes,
2: a course of radium-223 is, in my thoughts, because of its tolerability, its ease of administration, and its effectiveness in survival prolongation. As I point out to my patients early on, invariably will not preclude the use of future docetaxel, cabazitaxel, or additional clinical trials.
1: Now, thinking about a multidisciplinary approach to use of radium-223 in these type of patients... There are a few different ways of doing this.
0: There are a number of core functions and key roles that need to be fulfilled, but the way that those requirements are met will vary enormously between different centres according to local expertise and the availability of different staff groups. I think we can be clear that one individual needs to take responsibility for identifying suitable patients for treatment, but it may well be another member of the team who will ensure that treatment is delivered safely. What really matters is that we can get the groups together frequently and that they remain in close communication with each other throughout the whole process.
1: I completely agree with you, Val. The multidisciplinary approach to actually getting radium safety to the patient is so very key because you want to make sure that not only is the patient getting the right treatment that's appropriate for them, but also that patients remain well enough to complete the course of treatment. There is plenty of evidence of the benefit of multidisciplinary approach in treating advanced prostate cancer. Patients have actually an improved survival if their case is discussed within an MTT setting. And this makes sense because it's likely the optimum decisions will be made if multiple experts are involved.
2: Well, communication is essential with avoidance of clinical errors. Frankly, I still struggle with coming up with the ideal mode of communication,
0: It's really useful to convene meetings fairly regularly so that we're always reviewing our practice and the outcomes, and we're learning to merge together in a regular way. That allows for team continuity.
2: So in my community-based practice, I have regular meetings with my research team in combination with my multidisciplinary team. And we find this a really excellent way to stay on top of not only important clinical trial opportunities but also reviewing the most recently described literature and presentations. We found it's very important that communication takes
1: place outside the meeting as well. We'll always include something about the person that personalizes their case so as much as possible they're thinking about an individual person as well as the actual
2: clinical case.
1: Neil, I'm interested to know in your MDT when there are differences of opinion, how do you resolve those? What's the approach?
2: Oftentimes, we have differences of opinions based upon different clinicians' experiences. I think this is why medicine remains such an enjoyable profession, that it's not perfectly suitable to an algorithmic approach and that there is still the art of medicine, the art of science, and the ability to sit knee to knee with a patient and make a decision When there is a difference of opinion, it needs to be respected, it needs to be well articulated, and then a decision can be made, and oftentimes the decision may rest with the patient.
1: Val, when you see a big difference of opinion, how do cases like that get resolved in your MDT?
0: I agree with Neil. I think we need to go back to the patient's circumstances, quality of life, tolerability, comorbidities, etc., but seeing treatment options in the context of the bigger picture of what the potential impact of treatment might be and what the patient would stand to gain from it.
1: Yeah, I like the idea that it's a dynamic process. It's extremely important if we want patients to get access to as many of the survival-prolonging therapies as possible that they absolutely need involvement of multiple specialties. When I'm talking to a patient following an MDT discussion, it's great to tell the patient, I discussed your case with the various experts and here's the treatment plan. The idea that there are many other experts involved in making decisions for them is massively reassuring to the patient, but also to the clinician treating because you you know you've had the best input. So Neil, I'll be interested to hear your general view of the evolving role of the urologist in advanced prostate cancer.
2: I have championed for well over a decade now the importance of the urologic oncologist to be dedicated to all of these diagnostic and therapeutic modalities, as well as new things that come through our pipeline of research. There can't be a casual attempt because it'll only result in suboptimal results. The true north has to be what's going to be effective for giving patients the best result.
1: Val, can I ask you about the evolving role of the nuclear medicine physician in the treatment of advanced prostate cancer?
0: I think the role of the nuclear medicine specialist has changed significantly in recent years, particularly with respect to advances in imaging. It's so important that the nuclear medicine specialist is able to understand the implications of imaging findings and then apply those to the decision-making process offered by the rest of the team. It's not necessarily confined to selecting and identifying suitable patients for radionuclide therapy, but also identifying patients whom you've mentioned, perhaps with oligometastatic disease, who might be suitable for novel approaches under the care of the radiation oncology team.
1: Thinking about what clinicians should do to properly enforce a multidisciplinary approach. Well, I think the first thing is really to believe that it's worthwhile, to look at the data that shows that a multidisciplinary team approach improves outcomes for patients. Not only does the patient get a multi expert view on
2: their best way forward, it's also a a much more pleasant and collegiate way to work. Clearly, our goal is to find a way to cure the disease and have no one die of prostate cancer specific mortality. Through a multidisciplinary approach, I am very optimistic that in the next decade, we will get there.
0: Meeting in this way reinforces existing strong working relationships. It builds trust and trust between all members of the team is then transmitted to the patient. It really improves the patient's perception of the quality of care that they're receiving. I think we all agree that patients should be offered the opportunity to benefit from all life-extending options. I think the MDT is vital to delivering the sort of personalized care for prostate cancer patients that we're all trying to work towards. Thank you for participating in this peer CME educational activity. To obtain your CME certificate, complete the required post-test and evaluation form.